today I'm joined by four awesome ladies to explore the topic of female geekdom. First up, I have my wonderful co-host from Texas, Hook'em Horns, Melody. Welcome, Melody. Hey, y'all. Also joining me, we have Casey, who's who's a periodic guest on the podcast. I can convince her to come back from time to time. Welcome back, Casey. Hi, Luke. Thanks. And joining me for the second time in as many weeks, we have Carly Silver, who was on last week's podcast when we discussed book recommendations and a little bit of Iron Fist. Welcome back, Carly. Hey, Luke. And finally, last but certainly not least, we have Jennifer Brody, who is the author of the YA book, The 13th Continuum and the Continuum Trilogy. Jennifer, welcome. Howdy from the Virginia Festival of the Book. I've seen your pictures on Instagram, and it looks like you guys are having a blast. It has been an absolute blast. So, um, yeah, I'm with my people, my tribe, my book people. Okay. And I'm from Virginia, so it's nice to come home to my oh. hometown. If I'm not mistaken, you you reside in California, correct? Yeah, I live in Los Angeles. Okay. On last week's podcast, uh, your books uh, were one of the, some of the books that I recommended. People wanted to check out a good sci-fi fantasy series. Uh, before we dive into the topic of exploring female geekdom, tell me a little bit about the 13th Continuum or for the listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book. Absolutely, Luke. And I just want to say we were listening to that podcast on the drive back from Charlottesville, and your description was so fantastic. I really think that you captured so much of what I was trying to do. So I just want to give you props. Well, I, was impressed. I, I tend to be someone who can have a tendency to ramble and not be concise. So I was trying to be concise. So I'm glad you approved. But for people who may not have listened to the podcast, describe your book. Sure. I'll describe the book. The books take place. There's an event called the doom that destroys the surface of the earth. And before that happens, um, humans are evacuated into different colonies called continuums, and there's 13 of these contingency shelters. Um, some of them are deep under the ocean and the ocean trenches. Some are underground and some are in outer space, including a Mars colony. So humans are supposed to go into exile for a thousand years and then return to the surface to recolonize Earth. So the book tells a little bit about the evacuation where we see it from um, the president's youngest daughter's point of view as they board a submarine and dive, and we see a little bit of that and then we basically go a thousand years later and pick up. And the question is, who has survived? How have they survived? And who will return? So um, underwater in the 13th continuum, they've fallen into a dark age. They've lost their technology. They're submersibles. They've gone from a democracy to a tyrannical religious regime controls the colony. Um, so Myra, she's the head engineer's daughter. She is an engineer also. And she more or less discovers that their colony is running out of oxygen and their only hope is to get out and get back to the surface. So that's kind of where they kick off. And then we also go and see a space colony. So there's lots of fun nerd stuff in it. Absolutely. I really enjoyed the first book. I haven't had a chance to read the second one, but I thoroughly enjoyed the first one and I'm looking forward to it. I believe your third one actually comes out this year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the United Continuums is publishing uh, July 11th. And I did just get some very exciting news on Friday that um, we are putting a director on. We're packaging them for a feature film, and I can't say a lot of details about who's coming on, but it's a big deal in my opinion, and I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to be moving forward on making this into a big feature film. Awesome. Fantastic. I can't wait to see it come to the big screen. Let's... Yeah. 
let's um, dive into the topic. Um, I really enjoyed uh, last month's discussion when we um, explored Black Geekdom, and so I was thinking for Women's History Month that it would be fun to do the same with several uh, ladies who I really respect and admire. So the topic of geekdom can cover a vast range of issues from television, books, literature, gaming. The list, I mean, is pretty much innumerable. I know, Casey, uh, you consider yourself, and correct me if I'm wrong, to be a bit of a music geek. So it's not necessarily mm-hmm. just computers and uh, wonderful sci-fi stuff. It could be everything from that to music. What does geekdom mean to you, Casey? For me personally, geek or the way that I share my geekiness with the world or nerdiness, I kind of guess it depends on how somebody views themselves, is definitely with my love of video games. Um, my love of music, I, I don't feel kind of gets that stigma, but I can definitely understand how you can definitely geek out over some music for sure. Um, as an avid gamer, um, I usually play Blizzard games myself. Um, it's something that I've really been passionate about for a really long time since I was young, and my love of gaming is something that's been intertwined in my life since my cousin brought home his first Nintendo when I was very young, and I used to watch him play hours and hours, because he's much older than me, so he would not let me play with his toy, um, but I was just fascinated fascinated with watching him play. Um, gaming has been a road that's led me to many friendships, um, like yours, and adventures that I've never would have never got to go on, uh, meeting people from all over the world and getting to go to conventions like BlizzCon. Okay. Carly, what does geekdom mean for you? For me, geekdom would have to be really having a concentrated passion for something specific and going after it and, you know, finding a community that hopefully shares those same interests and supports them. When it comes to books, I'm, you know, I remember when I was maybe about like 12 or 13, was a big sci-fi fantasy reader and there really wasn't, I went to a pretty small school. There wasn't a lot of, um, I didn't really know anyone that shared the same passions. And I found um, like a forum online where I sort of was able to, literally geek out about the writings of Anne McCaffrey, who's one of my, was one of my, like the first sci-fi authors that I really got into. And I remembered feeling really supported by that because, you know, when you're reaching your adolescence and you're not finding necessarily that same kind of, you know, friend group that you're finding that, you know, you might wish you had, it can be nice to, to find a little bit of, you know, a common interest shared uh, somewhere, and I think that for me, my geekdom really centers around a lot of amazing female authors, their books, and really, you know, just being book nerds. I mean, I my I definitely can also tend towards the more history geek side, so you know that can sort of go down the academic route, and that's you know I think that's a different facet of it. But okay. for me, it's really about looking finding a character or an author or someone whose voice really resonates with me and following up on that, whether that, like I recently, one of my favorite, favorite YA authors, Tamara Pierce, like briefly took questions on Twitter and she was, you know, she was one of the first people back in the eighties to start really writing kick-ass YA heroines. And I was, I remember reading her from like the time I was 10 and I chatted with her briefly online and that, was like a transformative experience for me. It was so great. And to be, to be able to really, you know, follow certain individuals' careers and still have a, a passion for those 
stories, regardless of your age, regardless of really anything. And, and um, but being able to find a great voice is really what resonates with me as a geek. I, that's sort of a little like bit of like a windy, twisty, not quite answering your question answer. It but, is the perfect you know, type of answer for my, one of my podcasts, where my questions okay. can be as windy <laughs> as the answers. Uh, Jennifer, <laughs> what does being a geek mean to you? Well, I just want to say, Carly, are you my spirit animal? I don't know. Like, Anne McCaffrey, <laughs> I, I think maybe we had the same childhood. Um, Very I possibly. Went to a huge, oh, my God. Obsessive phase of her. I was just on a panel here at the Virginia Festival of the Book, and I totally was talking about Tamora Pierce. Alana meant so much to me mm-hmm. when I was a, a girl. Oh, my gosh. Because I, I went through a phase of where I started reading a lot of uh, what you would call, like, male-driven um, sci-fi fantasy when I was a kid from my dad he paid me $10 to read The Hobbit when I was in um, fifth grade and that was a lot of money back then and kind of sent me down this road and I was reading a lot of Edgar Rice Burroughs um, not his Tarzan books but his Mars books his John Carter series um, okay. but when I started to find more female driven material like A Wrinkle in Time meant a lot to me and McCaffrey Tamora Pierce um, later Antlon and Rice I was the biggest Anne Rice geek ever. Um, But I grew up in a small town in Virginia. And back in the 80s, it wasn't necessarily cool to be a geek (laughs) and to be into um, sci-fi fantasy, to be into, um, I was really into the X-Files. I was one of those people. Um, And I think when you're a geek, it's really that it's the depth of interest and how far you want to go to analyze it, to talk about it, even to cosplay and kind of live in it. Um, you know, and I think cut to now, uh, I think geek culture has really gone mainstream. And so when I first moved to Hollywood and started working in the film business, I was like, wow, everything that I was like made fun of or tortured for as a child is now cool. And like Hollywood is making all of it. Um, so I felt this real shift where it became actually a benefit that I had these influences and these interests. Um, so for me now, it's like going to Harry Potter world and, you know, knowing that I'm a Ravenclaw and like wanting to put all the clothes on. Um, I'm going to be speaking at Weed and Con coming up and I'm trying to be like, okay, do I cosplay? What do I wear? You know, and just like, you know, and even music, like you said, but for me, like I am a music nerd because the depth of my interest is huge. You know, when I get into a band and how much I want to analyze or read about it is enormous. So I think that that's what distinguishes you from someone who's just like a normal fan. Um, and I like the camaraderie and the culture that springs up and it's kind of how you find your tribe. Um, and the book thing is my fave because I'm such a huge reader and that's like where you get especially hardcore, especially I think in the sci-fi fantasy realm, like we, we tend to go pretty far. Like I can talk game of Thrones, like none other, you know, and like theories and fan theories and like the show versus the book. So um, I think it's great. And I love that. I think for kids coming up now, there's been a huge shift where it is far more acceptable to kind of find your interests, what you vibe with, and then just really pursue that with passion and energy and love. Um, so it actually makes me very excited for the future. Melody, what does me being a geek mean to you? For me, it's just being yourself and you know knowing what you like and really just pursuing that and hey you happen to find a group of people that feel the exact same way that you do about this certain topic and you really delve into it because I feel like that's really what 
expand your geekdom is when you find someone who likes it just as much as you do. Because I think all of us, I heard several times a group in small town, I mean, so did I. So, and when you find someone that feels the same way that you do about it, it's kind of like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm not alone. I, there's someone else here. There's, there's, there's someone else. There has to be others. And that's kind of how you really get into it. At least it was for me. And it's just about being you and knowing what you like and having that passion for it and wanting to talk about it and be about it. And it's great. Melody, I think that was excellent, by the way. I agree. Thank you. That's done. I completely agree with everyone that, that just spoke. I think, Mel, especially that you really touched on something that finding that we, a lot of people seem to have grown up that we just mentioned seem to have grown up in small towns or it's not just, you know, the immediate community around you, but being able to either create your own or find a conduit for that passion. People, you know, who make you feel like it isn't, there isn't something wrong with you that you like something that, you know, not everyone else in a small community necessarily likes. But that, hey, you're just, you know, you're acceptable and fine just the way you are. I think that for me, geekdom has also led to a lot of self-acceptance. And I think that realizing that the term isn't necessarily pejorative, but the way people have reclaimed it over the past maybe 20 years has been really, you know, I'm proud to say that I'm a geek. And I think that whereas, you know, in like the Back to the Future movies, that would have been a bit of like, you know, obviously that kind of, that kind of language would have been, you know, more pejorative now it's like and you know I'm, I'm a geek and your point is kind of thing <laughs> okay <laughs> excellent one of the reasons why i wanted to have this discussion and why i've en- enjoyed the one we had last month and i'm really looking forward to diving deeper into it as we go along is because i grew up in a very sheltered environment which was bo- which didn't give me much exposure to pop culture other than here and there for most of my childhood And so when I got thinking about some of the questions for the podcast, the question of heroes and who those people are when you're growing up came to mind. And I came to the realization that I didn't really have many. So this last week, they had the memorial for Star Wars icon Carrie Fisher, her mother, Debbie Reynolds. Uh, Both actresses inspired millions. Who were your first female heroes that inspired you, whether they are a real um, individual or a fictional character? And just to make sure that I'm not assuming anything, did you have male heroes? Uh, let's go with Carly first on this one. Okay, so I think for me, going off what I had mentioned earlier, authors like Tamara Pierce, who were among the first to really create the kick-ass female you know, teen heroine, um, were some of my you know, favorite uh, heroines growing up. Her character, Alana, who, whom Jennifer mentioned, was a uh, a noble maiden who didn't want to actually go and get married and wanted to become a knight instead. So she dressed up as her twin brother and went off to become a knight. And that that sort of subversiveness about the character of taking what was expected of her and flipping it so she could find her own passion in the world and really make ends up making it and um, ended up being someone who really made a difference around her was, I think, really transformative for me because I, you know, there wasn't that, I don't remember ever finding that kind of character who was not only a young woman, but a young woman who had the gumption to shape the world around her in the way that she saw fit uh, before that. So I think that, you know, that sort of writing has picked up a lot there. That trope has been picked up a lot in the last, you know, 20 years, and I'm really glad it has. But I think that, you know, characters like 
the ones that, you know, Tamara Pierce still writes. You know, she writes heroines of every ability, every shape, every size, every background. And I think that that, for me, was really, you know, really lovely to be able to see, you know, you don't necessarily have to look like X or think like Y in order for you to be a heroine of your own story. And I think that also, you know, again, going back to Anne McCaffrey, her, the heroine of her Dragon Riders with Kern series is this, you know, skinny little, you know, sort of like downtrodden girl who rises up to become one of the most powerful women in the world. And the idea of being able to break out of a shell or being able to break out of whatever constraints have been put around you, whether, you know, physical, emotional, what, what have you, and find your place and not only find something, but carve out uh, a place for yourself with your own passion was something that really resonated with me. I think in terms of my history nerdiness, I've always found female scholars that are willing to take a stand, you know, step out of, um, you know, sort of from behind the hallowed halls of, of academia, people like Mary Beard, Kara Cooney, uh, Dr. Salima Ikra, who does um, Ikram, who does a lot of work on ancient Egyptian animal mummies. You know, a lot of really powerful, you know, women who talk about both issues of gender and discrimination in academia and looking at the lives of, you know, not just the rich, powerful men in the ancient world or are willing to explore different avenues in their study are people that have always really fascinated me. I was fortunate enough have gone to Barnard College in New York where, um, as part of Columbia University, it really sort of, like, it really taught me how to be that sort of geek ideal in my own life. The idea of being an unapologetically passionate about whatever it is that I'm passionate about, while also, you know, listening and being, listening, learning, and being a contributing member to a larger group of people if that makes sense, to be able to, to be the, a better version of my female geeky self. That does make sense. Jennifer, who are your heroes? Well, I have to say that, again, I think Carly might be my spirit animal, but um, Alana did have an enormous impact on me. I devoured those books. I read them multiple times. Um, I think for me, part of it was her, she wanted to be a knight, but she had to, um, conceal Alana had to conceal her identity to do so she had to bind her chest she had to dress in male clothes um, I was actually speaking on my panel this week and mentioned I was talking about how YA has exploded and become a lot more diverse and tackling issues um, those books were apparently very controversial because um, Alana gets her period like in the books and she freaks out and thinks she's dying because you know she's in this man's world and she's in disguise and um, I know when I read that, it made a big impact. Apparently, that was highly controversial. And I saw Tamara Pierce talk about it. And she was like, I was just thinking logically, like, what would happen if you dressed up like a boy and became a knight? So I put it in there. I didn't realize that it was going to be like this big controversy. But as a young girl, I mean, reading all of those things, like, I think that she broke so much ground with those books. Um, I was an enormous She-Ra fan, like huge, huge I, um, I would get home from school. I think it came on at like three and on the bus, I would get home at like three fifteen. So every day I'd miss half of she So I started in first grade pretending to be sick 
so I could like get home early and put my head down on my desk and I would say my tummy hurts and then my mom would pick me up and give me ginger ale and snacks and I could see all of She-Ra. <laughs> That's like how obsessed I was. I got away with that for a very long time. Um, but again, I mean, She-Ra is obviously, I mean, she kicks ass. Like she has a sword. She flies around on a, on a flying unicorn named Switzwin. Like, you know, she stands up for truth and justice. Um, another one I think was, does anyone remember the original Supergirl movie? It was kind of low budge. Um, I do not. I can't I, say that I've watched it. Oh, it. I mean, I think if you watched it now, you'd be like, oh, this is awful. I don't know. Maybe it stands up. I haven't seen it in a long time. But as a kid, I think for me, a lot of the similarities between all of these is they're almost like it's the girl version of the boy hero. But for me, those the girl version is what I was really into. You know, like, forget Superman, give me Supergirl, you know, she can do everything he can do, you know, and she has a cute outfit and flies around. So, um, you know, those, I think, really impacted me enormously. Um, and I think that's why it's so important. Um, and we see it, what's happening in young adult is very exciting. Um, in my books, um, Myra is um, in the 13th Continuum. She she doesn't kick ass in the typical way, like a warrior. She's an engineer and a scientist, and she's descended from uh, people of color. And I think, um, you know, for me, like, I wanted my hero to be, like, a female scientist. I think it's very rare to see that representation. Um, I was just at a panel last night um, with the author of Hidden Figures um, and another author who had a book about the women of the Harvard Observatory. So they were, like, astronomers in the late 1800s at Harvard who made discoveries about um, how to name the stars, the universe. Obviously, if you've seen the movie Hidden Figures, they were the black women who worked at NASA. And it's really interesting because these women are heroes, but they had been largely forgotten until um, these authors started unearthing these histories and writing these books. And then Hollywood came along, obviously, and made Hidden Figures into a movie. Um, so, I mean, I think that there are these uh, female heroes around, but in some cases, I think that we're just now um, rediscovering them or giving them their due. Um, I do love Carrie Fisher, but as a child, I, Princess Leia was not my favorite Star Wars character. I was all about uh, Han Solo. I was okay. like, him on, you know? Yeah, I mean, I liked Princess Leia, but, you know, she's in a dress, and, like, they're rescuing her, and so the thing with Star Wars is it does fall into some of the more prototypical tropes, Right. I mean, she does kick ass ultimately. And like, she is great. But for me, I think the first movie when I saw it as a kid, I was like, I don't want to be in the dress in the prison cell. I, I want to be flying the Millennium Falcon or give me the lightsaber. So, you know, and she never does wield a lightsaber. Right. So like, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be a Jedi, <laughs> you know, so I think um, the new film like Force Awakens uh, or um, I really liked Rogue One, but where you see the women actually wielding the lightsabers or leading the mission, that that speaks to me a little bit more personally. Casey, if that makes any sense. It does. It absolutely does. Uh, Casey, who are your heroes? Oh, well, these, these, uh, I was thinking kind of more about my first heroes, my first female heroes, um, which kind of takes me back. And when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about when I was young and in school. And I know that Jennifer was saying that she would watch Shira. But for us, um, mm -hmm. when we got home from school, um, we didn't get to watch much TV. I also grew up in a small town. So it's weird that all five of us are all from small towns, which mm -hmm. is weird. But um <laughs> I, uh, when we got home from school, there was two shows that we could watch before dinner. I think that our parents were like, 
hey, we really want you guys to not be around us and we want to finish up making dinner without you guys bothering us. <laughs> um, and so we'd get home and we could watch Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, which is really the one that <gasps> I remember the most. And so it's funny that they yes. just yes. made that reboot. <laughs> yes. Um, if I would have known that, I would have. If I would have <laughs> known that, I would have had you on the podcast that we recorded like an hour ago. <laughs> it's all right. Um. So I remember just watching that like every day when I got home from school. Um. I really liked Kim. I mean, she's the pink Power Ranger, which I didn't care for pink, but I liked her because she was a brunette, which was important to me because oftentimes mm -hmm. the girls on TV were always blondes and I'm not a blonde. And I so know, gosh. it was, <laughs> so it was hard to really connect. So I really liked her. I really liked that she was very smart and that she always gave like really great advice. And even if the whole team didn't always take it, her advice usually ended up being the right answer in the end, which I'm like, that's me all the time i'm always right so i really <laughs> connected uh <-huh>. with her 99.999 <laughs> um, percent of the time yes and um and then in regards to that like when we played um i'd always want to be the pink power ranger but i had to make sure that i shared mm -hmm. with my cousin so she would also get to play the pink power ranger and then the only other show that we really got to watch like a lot when i was younger was where in the world's carbon san diego and even though oh, it really wow. wasn't about Carmen Sandiego, I, in, and even though she's really the villain, and I'm usually always drawn to the good people, like the helpers, the protectors, um, Carmen Sandiego is a villain, but she's so smart and she's so cunning. And even when you were a kid, you could see how she's just completely controlling all of these people. She's co controlling all the small min or villains and she's controlling the gumshoes that are after her. She's controlling everything. And I just thought that she was so cool. And I was always excited when they didn't figure it out because, well, mm -hmm. I wanted her to be safe. And she had the sweetest red jacket. I mean, her like trench coat jacket was so cool. So, so I I am going to demand for Halloween a Carmen San Diego outfit for you so that I have a photo <laughs> of that, Casey. Uh, well maybe, well maybe. Okay, Melody, uh, who are your uh, heroes? For me, I was always a big X Men fan, and I always loved the female characters on there. Um, Storm, Jean Grey, Rogue. Um, uh, Kitty Pride, Jubilee. I mean, all these characters, I've always admired them so much because they had these superpowers, you know? And while they did have their weaknesses, they were all just such badasses. You know, they're going to battle, they'll kick butt. They, it didn't matter to them. So I have always been fascinated with that series. Um, let me see anyone else. Uh, for real life, uh, I would definitely say my mom. Um, it wasn't always Aww. easy. It was it wasn't always easy, you know, growing up, and we didn't always have a lot of money, but she always made it work. So I definitely have to say her. You're making me all emotional over here, <laughs> TV, and especially geek TV, loves women who kick ass, whether that's through their physicality, whether it's their intellect, or if it's just someone who has a spine of steel and can basically push through anything, no matter how bad it is. Buffy, Xena, Charlie's Angels, Wonder Woman, and Supergirl are all people who come to mind when I think of ass kickers. Captain Janeway, Danny on Game of Thrones, even though she's not my personal favorite, I have to admit she has a spine of steel. Uh, Arrow's Felicity, who has an amazing intellect. Who do each of you guys consider to be the best rep representation of women in geek TV or film today? Jennifer, let's start with you on this one. I have to call out Jessica Jones 
I just love what Marvel's been doing um, with their TV series. Um, Obviously, Iron Fist just came out. Um, But I think with Jessica Jones, I mean, she does kick ass. She does have superpowers, but she's also super screwed up. And I like that there can be a range. Like, she doesn't really have her shit together. You know, she drinks too much. She does have a super hot boyfriend, which would be Luke Cage, who also becomes her husband. You and Mel need Uh, to do a cyber high five. um, Yes, that's my man. Oh, me too. I'll fight you for him. <laughs> no, he is just, I just want to look at him. I think Luke Cage was a good show quality-wise. I have a hard time thinking straight when he's on screen. I'm just like, um, this might be really bad. I don't care. It's so amazing. I love him. Um, so I got to give Jessica Jones props on her taste in men. Um, I love her. I think Game of Thrones has a lot of really interesting um, characters, um, especially in the show. Um, I love Cersei, and she's bad. Like, she's a bad guy, but man... You know, and reading the books and watching the show, I think Cersei's the most fun, or at least she has the most fun, and she gets to do stuff. Um, Arya has an interesting storyline, and I think she is, is also a pretty rad character. Um, you know, for me, I have a really hard time watching anything that doesn't have strong female characters complementing um, the male characters at, at the very least. So, for example, Daredevil, and I love the first two seasons of Daredevil, um, but the Night Nurse. Night Nurse is a really strong character, um, and she's played by Rosario Dawson, I believe, who um, I think does a fantastic job. And, of course, she pops up again in Luke Cage. Um, you know, so I think even in shows where the main lead is the male lead, it's nice to see strong women, you know, and in the case of Night Nurse, she's a nurse, she works in the ER, she saves people, she saves Luke Cage when he gets injured, um, so she has skills, she's really strong, um, so it doesn't necessarily always now have to be that they're warriors, um, they can be strong, I think, in other ways, which kind of gets me excited, because I like seeing kind of a range of character. Um, you know, so those are the ones that jump out at me right off the bat, but there's, there's a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipeline in terms of film. Usually anything that's going to have female lead, it's because it was based on a book written by a woman. Um, that was a very popular book. Um, you know, I think Hollywood is still struggling in some ways to get that right. I think TV is doing a better job, um, than features right now with, with female representation. If you ask me. Melody. Um, let's see for me, um, definitely Michonne from the walking dead, because I think that's just really Mm. awesome, gritty character who anytime she picks up that samurai sword and takes out three walkers with one swing, I'm just like, yes, teach me how to do that. Um, uh, I would say Annalise Keating from How to Get Away with Murder. That's one screwed up character, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter because in the end, you know she's going to win. Even if she has to kill yeah. someone or fight dirty or do whatever, she's going to get it done. So just to have that that drive to do it, I think um, is really great. And her counterpart, I would say, is uh, Cookie Lyons, who is played by the fabulous oh, Taraji Cookie. Henson. Jesus, Taraji nailed that role. She nailed that role all day. And, you know, she's kind of like, I would say she's my alter ego because if I had half of the balls that she does, I would do it. So, um, yeah, definitely those for me. Casey? How did Taraji not get nominated for an Oscar? Sorry. I have to okay. Okay. Can nominated? we say it again louder wow. for those in the back? How did because... she not get nominated for best actor? I know. I'm serious. Yeah, that, I don't that... understand it. The, the okay. women categories tend to be the seem to be the most competitive over in recent years. I don't, I they're don't always, know. They're always but the she, biggest dog. No, she deserved it. 
It, I mean, she her performance is transcendently good. She's a powerhouse, first of all. But I, anyways, I worship Taraji. I love her. Anyways, <laughs> I, had to, I had to speak up for her. Casey, uh, who is the best representation for you in uh, TV or film? So um, I have watched Jessica Jones, and I do like her a lot. Um, I did have a little bit of issue where a lot of the first season felt like it was so she felt so hung up in the, the love story or the, the attraction to Luke Cage um, that even though she's a total badass, I, I was like, oh, she's just, just just likes this guy again. And, and hopefully the, that it kind of kind of moves past that since they've kind of gotten a little bit of that, you know, out of the air. Um, but for me, I, I really, really like uh, Daenerys Targaryen. Um, I mean, I've loved her since, like the big show, she started out as this meek young child, and and you know she was pretty much sold to Cal Drogo, who when he is on the screen, I also can't focus, so I'm glad that they killed him off early. Oh, um, yeah. oh yeah, and <laughs> then and then now she's she's turned and she's so smart. She she's made so many good choices. She's worked through all of the issues that have been in her way time and time and time again. And she doesn't take crap from anyone. She has advisors who are all men, um, mostly until she was in a Marine. But um, but even though she listened to them and she understood that she needed to have that advice, she still took that advice and made it her own, which I feel like is so strong. And I know that in, in this show, you know, we don't know what's going. I mean, I haven't read the books. So for me, I'm just watching the show specifically. Yeah. Um, since I started the show before the books, I can't go back. Uh, it, it's hard for me <laughs> to do that. So I maybe after the show is completely done. But and so for me, I'm only taking it by what the show producers are giving me. And so for me, I really like her. Um, again, I feel like she's the good one, you know, like like in Wizard of Oz, she's the good witch. And so um, even though Cersei is amazing and every time that she is on the screen, she just dominates. Um, for me, um, I feel like Daenerys, Daenerys is really my representation of on there. So, Carly, how about you? So on, uh, on in film, I would have to say, of course, Hermione from Harry Potter because, you know, yes. I was, I mean, I think we probably all were that kind of, you know, that kind of, nerd and I, I know I Lord knows I was acted like a bit of a know-it-all as a child but the idea of <laughs> her being right and her also not you know being able to play the game just as well as the boys did in many cases better was something that really resonated with me and the idea of you know that the books and then the movie never I mean romance was definitely an element there but it wasn't the central focus of what her purpose on screen there was she was just as much in my mind, is probably more of a hero than Harry was, but that's a whole other story. I'm I'm not, I'm not like a huge, huge Potter fan, but I remember really much latching. I mean, I was a fan, but it wasn't like my sort of deal end all when it came to female. That's okay, Carly. Actually, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you for that. <laughs> I actually remember loving Professor McGonagall. Well, I'm, well, I'm on that stuff. Not just because Maggie Smith played her, but. But being her being able to not afraid to sort of go off the beaten path to do what she knew was right, and also being strict while at the same time one of probably the most brilliant wizard on screen. And, you know, she was able to bend the rules a bit, but she also didn't take 
crap from anyone, regardless of, you know, where you were in the school or how old you were or, or you know. And I think if you were Dumbledore. Exa- I mean, yeah, I mean, look, I think that he, yeah, unless you were Dumbledore, I think you probably really, she wouldn't, you know, it may take some guff from him, but I don't really know how much he probably didn't really, uh, you know, he seemed like a pretty sensible individual. But They always treated each uh, yeah, other you as know, equals. And she's Belle in Beauty and the Beast now, uh, Emma. And, uh, you yeah. know, Belle in Beauty and the Beast is kind of great, you know, bookworm, kind of nerd, you know. Um, yeah, I, mean, I also I, want to give a I, shout I out to, to Agent say, Scully from X-Files. I have to say, I'm I might be one of the few people that wasn't terribly, I haven't seen the new Beauty and the Beast revival. And I like, mm. I remember loving the movie, but the whole idea that a woman both needed to be rescued and that the, the idea of like needing to change the guy to be able to, I mean, obviously there's a lot more to the original story than that, but the needing to, you know, not being, it, it almost, it seemed a little bit like that neither of them could just accept the other as who they were. That Of course, the man needed to be changed and the woman was the only one who could change him. And I, I, I understand, I mean, I always found it a little bit, I would have, I mean, it would have been weird had he, you know, like it been like an actual animal when they fell in love, <laughs> like still even after mm-hmm. the rose, you know, but I think that for me, it always seemed a little bit like disingenuous of, you know, that, that was, you know, who you had to change the person in order for, um, uh, for them to, or, you know, they couldn't change on their own or, you know, she couldn't achieve her dreams on her. And obviously I know it was based, you know, set in like, you know, 18th century France. So, I mean, obviously that's, you know, uh, prime guillotine time and not exactly the front for women's liberation, but, <laughs> but to me, it always just, it struck a chord of, of maybe a little uncomfortable. But in regards to TV, I'd have to say Amy Santiago on um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I've always loved her. I know she's played by um, A One Life to Live Alum, which is always fun to see. So Bitchy bangs. In prime time, exactly. And, but she is unabashedly nerdy in her. I mean, she's, like, she's a little neurotic, which I think you know, they definitely make fun of on the show. But she's also one of the best cops in the precinct. And I think of the casting. I mean, the writing for that show and the casting has, has always really been on point. But she's also, she's a bit of like that sort of Hermione know-it-all, but she also really does know it all. And she's real. you know, she's very brilliant. And she, you know, has her foibles as all of the characters do. But she's, you know, unashamed as well she should be of the fact that she is, you know, one of the best detectives in the department. I think that, the other major female character, other than Chelsea Peretti's character, Rosa Diaz, is also, she's the sort of type of, I, she's more of like the badass sort of kick, you know, like kick butt um, type of nerd. And I always love the two of them whenever they, they get to work together on screen because you sort of see these unapologetically awesome, you know, women that are able to, you know, they can, they can, they can hold their own just as well as, you know, as any of the guys on the show. And I think that, I'm really excited for the show to come back. I think it's in maybe like a couple weeks or so because I really miss having them on screen. I always think of her as bitchy bangs because, of course, that was something that was incorporated <laughs> into the script easy. that was coined by the podcast. <laughs> uh, but the actress who plays her is Melissa Fumero. Um, Man, has she grown as an actress over the years? Yes, yep. she has. Absolutely. Because it was that's why I called her bitchy bangs. It would all of a sudden her personality just changed. And it was and she never like once that haircut happened, she never looked back. 
uh, <laughs> Melody, I want to talk to you uh, a little bit about the opposite of women who are great role models or good representations, the women who um, may disappoint us. I know that at the very beginning of Scandal, you were a huge Olivia Pope fan. And in recent seasons, that has not remained intact. Is is it safe to say that she's one of your disappointments? I can't stand that character now. And I used to love her. And it really upsets me because I put a lot of time in it. You know, these ladies know. It takes a lot of time and energy mm -hmm. to love a character. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And to watch oh, them yeah. be destroyed... It really oh, just doesn't sit well with me at all. And that character, I don't even know. It started out where she was this really strong, you know, independent woman who had her own business, who solved cases. She was no nonsense. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. And it's because I say it is. And that's the reason that we're doing all of these things, you know. But she had this weakness. It's that she was in love with a man, with a married man who was the president of the United States of America. So I just thought it was kind of a really interesting premise. And the interesting part was that she was in love with him and he was in love with her. And that he wasn't in love with his wife anymore. Because normally it's like, oh, he's in love with his wife and her at the same time. And he's this big jerk. But that really wasn't the case here. So, and I just, I really loved her character. But along the seasons, she stopped being the strong independent charismatic person into this person that I can't even recognize anymore. I don't know who Olivia Pope is because Olivia Pope doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know what she wants. And the show is towards the end of the sixth season. And the main character has no idea what she wants. And that really, really honestly frustrates the piss out of me. And the fact that this character is now continually, I don't watch anymore because I stopped watching because I figure I, I put my own mm. self out of my misery. But I, mm. this character is continually manipulated by the same person, by the same people. And it's like, why don't you ever learn from your mistakes and grow? Why does this character not get a chance to grow? And I just, I get very, very frustrated now when I even hear Olivia Pope because I'm like, no, I don't care anymore because it doesn't matter because she's just going to go back to doing the same thing she always does because this, this character is in a perpetual circle and something has to change. And until that happens, I'm not watching. I don't think I'm ever going to pick it back up again because I'm just, I'm that far done. But that's probably, if you want to talk about biggest disappointments for right now, it's absolutely Olivia Pope. Casey, have you had any characters that you find disappointing? I do. Um, so I know that we were talking about um, Jessica Jones, but um, in, in Daredevil, we were watching season two and they introduced Elektra. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's going to be totally badass. And she is in her, you know, like ability to actually kick ass. She is awesome. And then they use the most commonly placed status on her ever. And all the crazy stuff she's doing is because she's in love. Vomit. And then in the series, we also have Karen Page, who is should be a very strong female character. She's smart. She's intuit, intuitive. However, she also dumbs, does some of the dumbest things ever. Like, just the most, like, where you're like, why are you doing that? You should not do that. And I don't know why they keep doing that. And they also play that up to her being in love. 
And I know that Matt is hot, but I don't know why they act like every woman who's ever been around him is just turns into a total idiot. So that really bothers me for those two characters because they should both be very strong. Um, we just finished up watching Gotham and Barbara's character uh, drove me absolutely crazy. Um, at the beginning, she's this typical housewife and she's she, she they weren't married yet, but she and she had a job. But she was always worried. She's always waiting. And he just and Jim just continued to lie to her time and time and time again. And she was like, oh, that's OK. Oh, that, it's OK. I believe you when. I mean, if she has half of a brain, she knows not to believe him. And then they were like, oh, instantly we're going to let her grow this backbone and she's going to go crazy, but she's going to go back to her ex. And I feel like they thought that that was like a good stand-up moment for her because her ex was a woman, but that didn't really make it any different than any other typical, like, I'm mad at you, so I'm going to go sleep with somebody else like that. I just felt that that was so stereotypical of how in film and TV they they make women like, oh, this is your only option. And that drove me crazy. Those are my most recent shows I've been watching. So that's where those two came from. (laughs) Carly, do you have any disappointing characters? Definitely. I actually didn't watch um, the Gilmore Girls reboot on Netflix. I watched the show back in the day. And I remember always really liking that Rory was a bit of a nerd and she was also really passionate about whatever she set her mind to. And she was really, she was unabashedly a bibliophile and she really, you know, there were such bright things on the horizon for her character. And then I wasn't really planning on watching the reboot anyway, because I've never been a great, you know, I've never been a fan of like 10 years later kind of reboots just because they never, I sort of have lost my interest with, you know, with barring, you know, a couple exceptions lost, you know, I've already moved on to another show, different characters. But I remember I read the recaps because I was curious enough to see what had happened. And I'm not going to spoil anything because I don't know who's seen it or who hasn't seen it, but they completely rewrote the character of Rory to be sort of the, this wishy-washy entitled antithesis of who I remember her to be. And I remember that in the original show, they, they had her sort of go off track for a while and live with her grandmother and become like a little bit of a socialite. But I remember her seemingly finding her own two feet again and, uh, you know, becoming a determined professional. And in the show and in the reboot, it seemed, again, not having seen it, I can't really necessarily speak to the specifics of it, but it seemed like she become, I think as Jamie would put it, if you're talking about one of the guys in General Hospital, a vapid little nothing. She had sort of posted on after, like, you know, one big byline. And, you know, she didn't really seem to have that passion anymore. It was more about her personal life and this guy and this guy. When she always had love interests, but it was never about the guy for her. It was about achieving, you know, going to Harvard and then it was Yale or working with the newspaper. Or And I remember reading about, like, the, I remember reading the recaps and I was like, wow, I'm actually really glad I didn't bother reinvesting that time into these characters because it seemed like the way that they were eventually written was not, would not have done the original characters any justice. Jennifer, who are your disappointing characters? 
Well, I have to say Katniss and the Hunger Games. Um, the final film came out, I believe, maybe about a year ago. Um, you know, and I think what it was, and I think, you know, the third book for me, Mockingjay, was really disappointing. And I think in the movie, it was almost even more amplified and worse for me um, to see it on the big screen. And I think the thing that really got me the most is that she's set up to be this incredibly strong uh, female warrior character. Um, and, you know, love stories are not governing her life. Like, And by the very end, the very end, it's like after you do all of this, you defeat the bad guys, you overthrow the government, you do all of this, the most you can hope for is basically to be a housewife and raise kids. And I think it was that, you know, in the movie, the very end, it's like her cradling a baby and with a man she does not love, um, at least not in the way that maybe we would like. It's someone she's sort of um, settling for because of some trauma and stuff. But to me, it was like the, the most she could hope for was to be a mother. It just kind of spoke to that idea of women um, not having options. Um, and it's like, if you do all of this, I just would have liked to have seen her at least have something bigger that she could contribute or aspire to, even if it was also being a mother. Um so to me, that really hit me, and it hit me hardest, I think, in the film when I saw it in the theater. I left feeling really disconcerted. Um, you know, I, we talked earlier a little bit about Game of Thrones. I have read all of the books. I am watching the show. Um, and the show is this interesting blend now where it's, it's fan fiction kind of uh, from the showrunners mixed with real things, I think, that will happen in the books. Um, for me, the thing that bothers me, I love Danny Aries, but it's the amount of nudity and rape that's used as a plot device in the show. There is some of that in the book, but definitely not to the extent. And, and I'm just like, can Danny like sometimes kick ass without becoming fully naked? Like, it seems to a certain degree at times very gratuitous um, to me, especially in some of the later there was a um, episode where she like burns up a bunch of people and then of course all her clothes burn off and she's super naked and I'm like I don't know for me it just seems a little much at times um and we're not getting the same amount of nudity from her male co-stars so I just think at least there should be parody in nudity that's how I always feel about it I'm like you know where's my Jon Snow get him get him to strip down more often if you're gonna do it but um you know, so for me, there's just a little bit of, and I know it's it's something you see a lot in cable TV. It has to be sexy. It has to have lots of sex. It has to have, you know, that titillating effect that, you know, obviously the books don't necessarily need as much of. Um, so for me, that that's a little challenging. Uh, I'm not thrilled with um, the casting of Bobby and The Expanse. I don't know if anyone watches that. I love um, The Expanse, you know, um, the series. I yes, think I that do too. It's, it, it is, for me, the new Battlestar Galactica um, with maybe not I not as too. not as many space battles, it needs a few more. Yeah, it could. I mean, I've read the books as well, and just for me, and this is a lot of this stuff is translation, but I picture Bobby like this um, very like sizable, strong warrior. She's written that way in the books, right? Um, I can't remember what her cultural background is. Um, but kind of like, you, you know, the big, the character in a Brienne of Tarth and Game yep. of Thrones, I pictured Bobby being kind of like Brienne and I thought they did a great job casting Brienne and finding someone who really had the size and scale. And so for me, Bobby was like a Brienne and I feel like with the casting, they didn't quite get for me the representation quite right. Um, you know, and that's, I, I love, I love this show. I think that the, uh, the books are great. Like I love the atmosphere of it. And I think Bobby's a great character. Like she is super strong. She's and really probably intense. my favorite character from the books. 
Yeah, she's actually probably, aside from, you know, she, she's probably my favorite character in the book by far. But just with the casting, it took me a little while to get used to it because it's not at all how I pictured her. And I don't necessarily think it's how she was written either. Um, so, you know, but, it, you know, we have to live with certain changes. I mean, I love Jessica Jones. There's flaws. I did agree with whoever shouted out Karen Page and her plot line, and I thought that got especially bad in the end of season two. I think season one, she was a bit stronger, and then season two, by the end, I was just kind of like, eh, I don't know what's going on with her here. This is just getting to be a little, like, sappy and depressing, and, like, yeah, Matt is super hot, but, like, you know, get it together, lady. Um, so... Yeah, but I mean, I think that overall, like the fact that we even have these range of characters that we're discussing is a good sign. And it's a sign of progress in a lot of ways, um, you know, even if they are flawed or if they're not kind of getting them entirely right. Um, you know, and I think we also have ones that are that are great and amazing. And so um, it's kind of fun to think about, though. Good topic. Let's talk about men for a moment. Uh, one of the things that I've always found frustrating, especially in recent years, is you'll have this um, female character. She kicks ass. She's really strong. And then a male love interest enters the picture. And all of a sudden, this is basically what Mel is going through, except for maybe a little bit differently. Everything that you loved about her just sort of changes. And because of the man. Um, mm -hmm. Carly... As, as a book editor, how do writers t in TV and film or authors avoid this trap of having this wonderful character and then because a man has now entered the picture, the story all of a sudden changes her direction? I think that that's a really good question. I think, you know, as someone who doesn't write fiction, that's not necessarily something that I could speak to as a writer, but I think in terms of it, it honestly really depends on uh, the type of book that you're writing, the type of story you're trying to tell. If you're, you know, specifically looking to tell a romance novel, you know, if you're looking to write a romance novel, a lot of times you'll get, you know, the career-driven character and, you know, the or the bachelor who doesn't want to settle down, something like that, then gets like a baby plopped in their lap and they sort of end up finding this other part of themselves they didn't really even know that they wanted. And they think that there's a way to make that sort of trope, that trope work without seeming like the original character that you met was false or that the premise of the story was disingenuous. You know, I think that I know that there, there is so much, you know, still so much pressure on women to be able to, to have it all, even if they don't necessarily want, you know, what if they don't want a husband? What if they don't want kids? And I think that that, you know, can be, you have to make sure that if you're going to, if you want to tell the type of story that, you know, it's like an instant family or if someone, you know, inherits a baby in a will or something like that, that you have to have, that your character has to be the type of person who's going to be willing to make that sacrifice, who's going to be, you know, or that it's believable for their story. And I think that by and large, romance authors do that really, really well because they understand, you know, they know what kinds of, um, uh, they know what kind of story they want to tell going in. And I think that, um, like uh, Melanie said, that, you know, it seems like obviously Scandal's not, there's a romance element to it. It wasn't written as a romance novel. But I think that, you know, if you know, you have to know going in what your character will and will not compromise. And, you know, if, if you know, you, I watched the first couple seasons of Scandal and really loved it. And once it sort of started becoming like an Olivia Fitz, Jake triangle, I was like, all right, it's a certain point, I sort of, 
it felt to me like I was losing track of who Olivia Pope was, which for me, the best part of her was always her as a gladiator doing all sorts of amazing things. And for me, I didn't, you know, I think that I can't imagine it's got to be harder with an ongoing series because A, you don't know if you're going to get renewed and B, you know, your character's going to evolve over time on depending on a lot of different things. But I think that you got, you know, I don't know if it's a lack of a, a long story or sort of lack of character definition, but I think that, you know, if a reader falls in love with a character, especially over, you know, like, like a series, you're not going to have like an outlander, for example, you're not all of a sudden going to have the heroine only want to be with the husband in the current time period. That wouldn't make any sense. The whole reason that everyone, you know, fell in love with her is, and, and with Jamie Frazier was because she was torn and because she was in this impossible situation. He was so handsome. She's not going to all of a sudden just decide that she doesn't want him because that's not the way the character was written. So I think that, in, especially in the confines of a short novel, it can be easier to plot out exactly what's going to happen because, you know, you know, you know, that character might pop up in another book, but generally, you know, the character experiences are happily ever after within the, within the confines of one theory, of of one novel. But, you know, I think that it's ultimately about, and there's so many factors I don't know about, you know, television writing that could play a factor, but I think that, if you don't stay true ultimately to the characters that the readers fell in love with, that um, you, you it's very easy to lose track of, um, of what made readers, um, rather what made viewers really tune in because the romance with Fitz was always part of what I enjoyed scandal for, but that wasn't the core of it. It was Olivia Pope and the amazing job Carrie Washington did portraying that particular character. And I think that, yeah, I think that it, it's, and I know that this is a kid's movie, but bear with me for a sec. I feel like sometimes romance is shoved down a reader's throat in a, or a viewer's throat in a non-romantic movie or TV show or book in a way just because you have to have it. Like, I, re- I saw Moana a couple months ago, and I know that it's a kid's movie, but a lot of times in those, whether it was a Disney movie or other, um, really, you know, any other animated film has to be a love interest and I remember even as a kid wondering why why can't someone just why does it always have to be a prince to a you know for the princess or something like that and one of the things that I most you know I thought the movie was fantastic the acting the casting the the music but one of the things that I loved most about Moana as a heroine was that she didn't you know there was her male counterpart but she didn't there was no romantic interest she was allowed to shine as a character in and of herself. And I think that I would love to see more of that, that you don't necessarily need a romance to either define or restrict a character. Because, you know, I think it's it's pretty obvious that women, female characters are willing, you know, are just as capable of being interesting and attracting readers if they don't necessarily have to have a romance. It can be a part of them. But just as women are often told that they are incomplete without a man, are completely without love or certain, you know, something in their lives, I feel like female characters on screen get circumscribed all too easily and therefore get lost in the, in the chaos of, of trying to add something in that may or may not actually be organic to the character. Mel, as a film school graduate, did you have to discuss these type of things in class? And how do you think that authors and writers can avoid the trap? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you have to, you have to talk about all of these, these things and who you want your character to be. And it's important to write out a fully fledged character. You know, we can't just start with this character in one place and say, Oh, you know what, as, as I write it, you know, it's, we're going to end up in some place and it'll be great because I, in my, you know, opinion, it feels like if you start that way, you're, you're going to forget the things you've done along the way. So for me, if I'm, you know, writing a character, thinking of a character, I want to know this is where we're going to start. This is where we're going to be around the middle and this is where we're going to end. So that way you have some kind of streamline. You have a, a vision of where you want to end up. Now, how we end up there is, you know, can be organic, but there has to be a clear definition of the characters of where they want to be. And, you know, how can you avoid this trap is just remembering the basics of the character, remembering, you know, who this person is, why they do the things they do. And if certain situations come up, how would they react going back, you know, on their past, on their history and what could be something to make this character change and how much will they change? You know, it's about staying true to character and remembering the things that they've done and something they will do and something they won't do. You know, I always feel like if you have a character, you have to say, this is something that they would never do. This is something that no, this would not happen. Absolutely not. So it's it's always interesting when we're talking characters. Jennifer, as an author, a published author, how do you avoid the trap? Yeah, I mean, this is something I think about a lot when I'm crafting character and crafting story. So um, in my book, The 13th Continuum and continuing through the series because the characters continue into Return of the Continuums and onward. Um, with Myra, who is in the underwater colony in Arrow, who is a soldier in outer space, and it really is their connection that kind of fuels the story. Um, I really actually just tried to subvert it. I mean, my idea was to take it and turn it on its head. Um, so Myra is the one who, um, isn't as affected by the love story. Like when she kind of loses Arrow, she feels bummed for like a minute and then she's like, well, but still we have this huge mission. Let's get this done. And it's actually Arrow who's paralyzed by losing Myra, can't function, can't eat, can't sleep. And he's this strong, like, soldier, basically. So my idea in these books was instead of just avoiding it or staying away from it, was actually completely turn it on its head and show the flip side of it and invert the genders and make um, make that something that the male character goes through where his life is turned upside down by losing her. Um, and the female character is the one who's kind of like, all right, I'm on this mission. I got to save Earth. Let's kick some ass. Let's get this done. So um, that's kind of what I do. And I always, when I'm working on uh, material, try to think about what is a different way to do this? What is a way to insert diversity? What is a way to insert something um, that isn't always represented um, in contemporary culture or that maybe flies in the face of tropes or stereotypes? So I'm always trying to look for ways to make it um, different and speak to people like the kind of little girl that I was um, where I was looking for my heroes. You know, um, even going back to Shira, you know, like she's never so love sick or torn that she can't go and um, and fight her battles. So, you know, for me, that's that's incredibly important. I just basically roll my eyes and get so annoyed when it's just like a love story and the girl's just pining and pining for the guy. Like, I just am like, come on, I'm so bored. So, um, yeah, so that's always what I'm looking for and trying to do. Um, and my next book, which will have a lot of space opera components and probably be kind of have a bigger love story component. Um, I'll be working again to try to make it something unique and something different where we're not just following into some stereotype of like, 
you know, the princess and, you know, the prince has to rescue her, you know, I, I can't write stuff like that. I, I know I never will. And I know you also teach sci-fi and fantasy. Um, you have courses that you'll yes. teach. Is that something that you run into periodically when you're reading other people's work? Yeah, I do. I mean, with my students, I'm always trying to um, work with my students to develop unique voices. Um, I am lucky that my students are uh, super diverse in terms of age range, background, um, immigration status, um, you know, ethnicity, everything, um, you know, sexual orientation. And so I'm always encouraging my students to find what they have that's unique or what perspective they have or their background lends them. And I'm always like, you are specifically equipped to write this kind of story or character. Make sure you're putting them into your stories, even when it is sci-fi fantasy. I think in sci-fi fantasy, we get a lot of ability um, to kind of put this stuff in and kind of get away with things and be more experimental than you might see in contemporary stories or contemporary romance. Um, you know, remember the first black actress was on Star Trek, you know, on a television show. Um, you look at the casting in the new Star Wars, you see it's a black man and a woman who are the leads. So I think that we have a unique ability to really kind of break ground, break space. Um, and so I'm always just trying to get my uh, students to kind of channel whatever that is, be it, you know, transgender, if they have experience with that, be it, you know, their family came from the Philippines and they're writing a story about a Filipino girl, whatever it is, you know, or whatever they're writing. Um, I'm just like, you know, let's explore this. Let's get it in there because, you know, that's the stuff that I get excited about. You know, let's just not go backwards. Let's go forwards. So, yeah, and I have to say my students are really kicking major ass. And, like, I just so love seeing the uniqueness that's coming out of all of their work. Awesome. Casey, how do you feel that authors and screenwriters can avoid the trap of women basically changing? Right. So it's been said, I think, by all of the women before me, but they need to be honest to the character. Um, they oftentimes, you know, like we've said with Olivia Pope, they kind of flip that switch and all of a sudden they're just different. Um, or, you know, oftentimes with TV, I feel it happens. Um, the show goes on too long. They just run out of story or they're just not sure where to go or they've made all these, you know, exceptions. And now they're like, oh, crap, we don't we can't figure out how to put this together. And and we all know that as a person, yeah, you can change from time to time. You know, sometimes you are going to have those switch moments where you're going to be one person and something happens and you might feel differently afterwards. But oftentimes it feels like in TV and film and books that they oftentimes don't have a big enough switch that really that makes sense for why they're making that change. Um, we, I also feel that in TV and film that they oftentimes write these love stories in, especially with superhero shows um, and things like that, because they maybe feel that women need these. So they come with their boyfriends and husbands to watch these kinds of movies or TV shows or anything like that, though they obviously don't know that some of us don't need that kind of stuff. But I think that oftentimes we see so much of the love story aspect in there because of that kind of mindset. Like, oh, we're going to, this is how we're going to appease the women, which is just extremely sexist and in its own point. But I think that love stories have to be there because it's a common aspect of our human interaction with people that are attractive to ourselves. Um, so I think that it's important to be there. 
I feel like one show that I, I thought back on this and I almost brought her up as my one of my favorites in regards to uh, female characters was in Bones. Um, Temperance Brennan in the first many seasons, six seasons actually, um, her and Booth have this very strong attraction to each other. Um, he, he is the one that is always going after her. She is very adamant about not being in a relationship. She is very smart. She is dedicated to her, excuse me, to her job. And she holds herself to very high expectations and standards. And throughout the seasons, they both are in relationships. Um, Brennan's is straight, just sexual relationships. And he has like a girlfriend for a part of it. Um, And she doesn't act like an idiot, even though you know that she's attracted to him and he's attracted to her. Um, It takes a very large moment of one of her employees getting killed at the end of season six for Brennan and Booth to actually, actually get together. And, and it was really meant for her just, she needed that physical, emotional, like substance and they have sex and what ends up happening is she gets pregnant. And for a very, very long time within this series, she is adamant about not getting married. She's like, no, I don't need to get married. I don't, I don't need that to be myself. And, but it was important to Booth. So, um, you know, they end up having a kid. So there changes that process for her. She becomes a mother, which she never expected. And I felt like that show did the best on kind of having that love story where at the beginning, all you want is for Brennan and Booth to get together. Cause you're like, yes, they have such good chemistry. And but they don't do it. They stick true to the character for both of them. Okay. Could I add something in on on that note? Yeah. I think that I completely agree that the idea of um, I think that I completely agree with the idea of not needing a romance. But I think what's interesting is editing romance novels. I think that one thing that I really appreciate about romance as a genre is that a lot, especially in today's um, you know, authors writing contemporary books with contemporary heroines. And um, I, it's not, a lot of times it's not someone's not looking for love. And I think that I always encourage my authors, and I think a lot of many, most authors thankfully do write this way, that it's not that the heroine has to be so independent that she never wants to fall in love, but that she's able to stand on her own two feet, whether or not, you know, whether or not she has the romance and she ends up finding a compliment in herself, in her partner, whomever that may be. And I think that, that that's something that I think is so important, whether you're writing a romance in a movie or TV or in a book. I think that in general, you know, romance novels are seen by some as sort of, Oh, well, you know, women, you know, need, you know, it's by, by and about, women who need men in their lives. And I think that by and large, that's not the case. I think that they're some, some of the strongest heroines that I've ever read have been in romance novels. I've gone through stuff that, you know, no one ha- should ever have to go through a situ- really heroine situations. And I think that authors are do you know, do a re- romance authors in particular do a really wonderful job of creating strong, believable heroines that happen to find romance. It's never, you know, that the best romances are never disingenuous in the sense of they don't 
they seem to flow naturally. I think that goes to the point of what you were just saying about Booth and Brennan. Now, I didn't watch this. I didn't watch Bones, but the idea of staying true to the character while also finding love adds to the authenticity of the heroine because it's a part of their character. It's not who. It's not the entirety of who they are. And I think that in order for for me for a romance to work well, it can't. The character can't just be about just only want to fall in love because to me that's not necessarily a reflection of the way people go about their everyday lives and it's an important part of life but it's not that isn't the be-all end-all and I think that the like I said the both the best romances are always you know there's always a clearly mapped out character arc regardless of whether or not there's a significant other involved let's talk about film for a minute. While we're seeing all kinds of solo male titles from Thor, Captain America, The Hulk, Wolverine, um, the list goes on and on, women or female characters seem to have trouble getting either blockbusters or comic book um, inspired films. I mean, Black Widow in the Avengers films kicks as much ass as any of the men do, and yet she doesn't still have a film. Why is it that studios seem to have so such a big problem greenlighting, shall we say, films like, say, A Black Widow? Is it because we've had bombs with Catwoman and Elektra? And when it comes to Wonder Woman, if she does well, could it open more doors? If she is either a critical or not a box office success, do you think that it could have negative impacts on future female-led comic book superhero blockbuster films. Mel, let's have you go off first on that one. So I remember you were talking a little bit before saying about um, Electra and what was the other character you just mentioned? Catwoman. Catwoman. So there's a problem with those. The script sucked. I think that's why they were such bombs because the story was just garbage. And I think the two title roles were miscast as well. It's very important about casting and story and things like that. So I don't think it's that women can't lead these big action shows because they absolutely can. You just have to have the right combination of cast and writers and everything has to come together right for it to be successful. And with Wonder Woman, I'm hoping, praying, lighting a candle in the window, everything that this is going to be the one that, you know, helps it skyrocket, helps it take off. Because I think women can absolutely lead these movies. It's just you have to have the right settings for it. And, you know, going back to things is, um, I think Hidden Figures is a really great example of what happens when you have a good story, you have good actors, and it all comes together, and it's it's good. Um, so I think it absolutely okay. can be done. I cannot wait for Wonder Woman. DC always worries me a little bit, but it's okay. Yes. <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I'm a little weary, but I'm excited, especially since the character was the best part of Batman versus Superman. I feel like they have they have something good going here, so they should be able to capitalize on it. Let's hope they don't screw it up. Jen, uh, what do you, why do you think it is that Black Widow can't get a film while everybody else on the Avengers seems to be able to? Yeah, I mean, this is actually a pet issue of mine and something I actually do have a lot of insight on. Uh, my background before I was an author is that I worked in Hollywood. I worked at New Line Cinema. I worked for Michael Bay. <laughs> I produced a movie for the Weinstein Company. Um, so... The contemporary wisdom in Hollywood, which shouldn't be called wisdom, is that uh, women can't open movies. 
And that literally is it, period. Um, Hollywood is a business still very much run by men and specifically by a lot of white men. And um, what you see is that the films they make are a reflection entirely of who is behind the camera in terms of directors. I think women make up maybe 6% of feature film directors, which is abysmal and depressing and horrible. Um, In the writing side, it's under 20%. It's a little bit better in television, which is why I think you see it being a little better. Um, But, for example, I think Game of Thrones doesn't have a single woman in the writer's room. And I think that some of the stumbling blocks they're having that I mentioned earlier is related to that. Um, So, you know, I remember when I was going out with a romantic comedy script many years ago, I was literally told that because it was a female lead and there wasn't a male co-lead, no studio would make it. And I had interest from some pretty high-level people. Um, That script still very well may be getting made soon. But, um, you know, and I remember being so depressed by that idea. Um, So that's sort of the contemporary wisdom. Um, I think when these films are made, um, something like Catwoman or Elektra, um, the people making them fundamentally uh, often misunderstand the property. And this is, again, going to who's making them. And then when they do fail, as many of these do, uh, films with women aren't really given a second chance the way that male films are. Like, how many times have they rebooted Spider-Man? How many times have they rebooted Superman, even when it hasn't worked and they keep trying? But where was the Electra reboot or the Catwoman reboot? It's like abandoned. It reminds me a little bit of what happened to Catherine Bigelow, who's one of my favorite filmmakers, who did like Strange Days and Point Break, which are all huge box office successes. But she made one movie that bombed and did not work and did lose money. And then she was basically blacklisted forever for like 10 years. And I wasn't allowed to put her on my list for directors. Nobody would hire her, and then she had to go make Hurt Locker independently, um, which obviously speaks for itself in terms of what impact it had and what it did. Um, so for me, I think it is somewhat of the women not getting another chance um, if the first film doesn't work. Um, in terms of Wonder Woman succeeding, I mean, I'm skeptical because Zack Snyder, oh my gosh, like I'm a huge DC Comics mm-hmm. fan, and I, I could not get through Batman versus Superman, <sighs> you know. And yeah, you have to, right there with you. Know, you. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I struggled and I love DC Comics and I love, you know, um, Justice League. And when I worked at New Line, we used to try to get some of those properties out of Warner Brothers and into New Line so we could try to do them right, the way we kind of handled the Blade movies. But um, we never succeeded um, at the time. And, you know, so my, my optimism isn't very high. Where I have optimism, and I know Hidden Figures got a shout out. I'll tell you what film I'm excited for is A Wrinkle in Time, which Ava DuVernay is directing. Yes. And so what you start to, right. So you start to see, so you put a black woman who was robbed of an Oscar nomination. I'll say it again, another one who was robbed. And she put her behind the camera and the book was not written this way, but look at how she's casting it. You know, Mrs. What's it is Oprah Winfrey. You know, they're casting diversity into all of the roles. You have Ava directing it. You know, you have strong female characters in my mind in that. And so, and Disney, I believe, is is doing the film. Um, And I know Ava is really passionate about getting more women behind the camera, especially women of color. And she has programs where she's mentoring. And that's really what women need. And we need to get more women directing. We need to get them writing scripts. um, And we need to get them um, casting, especially um, women of color. And so um, something like that starts to get me really excited where I say, hey, here's potential. Here's, Here's what it could be if we start kind of opening the gates and opening the doors. 
And I think what happened in television is that um, it used to be you had to come up through a pretty strict apprenticeship system to be a TV writer, where you'd start in a writer's room and be a writer's assistant. And so it was kind of locked out to anyone who didn't come up through the TV system. But with the explosion of, of, of cable, of different outlets and internet TV like Netflix and Hulu, suddenly you could have a different background that wasn't TV writing. Like, let's say you wrote a novel um, like Noah Hawley or something, and you can come in and create Fargo. Like, you can come in and, you know, write and make a show um, or write on it. The OA is one of my favorite shows from the Netflix recent, from Netflix recently. But you can see that once that kind of opened, the diversity of storytelling and some of the people who are writing and directing, for example, like the OA, um, kind of exploded. And I think that hasn't quite happened in feature films. I think it's still... Um, a little bit closed down. So I think the more we open and give women opportunities, which is what I really heard at this Hidden Figures panel last night, the more you're going to see um, success in this arena. So I really hope so. It, it's depressing to me that it, it's as draconian and as bad as it is right now. I mean, 6% of women are directors. That just is, I don't, I can't even, it was better in the 80s. I'll put it that way. Carly, what are your thoughts on women leading blockbuster films? It's an interesting point because I'm actually not a superhero and or comic fan, but whether in the hard, like hard copy or in movies, nothing against it. It's just for some reason it's it's not for me. I'm not a fan of loud things that go boom. So, um, so for me, I I mean it's not out of any feminine sensibility. Just never really caught on. I, I've seen some, never really caught on for me. I prefer just other films, but. I think that, like, I think that, like everyone said so far, there's absolutely no reason why a woman couldn't and shouldn't uh, head up a blockbuster. And I think, like, again, like everybody's mentioned previously, the example of Hidden Figures being one of the best movies I've seen in the past 10 years, I'd say, having the right script, having the right directors, having such an, an incredible um, source material and really um, sort of being like, lightning striking everything at the right time now at the same time you know you get mediocre superhero films made by men starring men every and you know with a distinct lack of diversity that do very well and i think that going to jennifer's point earlier again i can't speak from a film perspective but i think that they're probably critics are probably going in you know with a more automatically more critical given that there's a woman there would be a woman leading a franchise. I think that uh, if, you know, because the, it, it there's, I, there's something probably jarring to, to something, you know, to people who are used to and or only support uh, sort of stories written by, about, and for white men. And I think that, again, I'm not trying to single out any particular critic, but what's interesting is, I, um, there was an article that came out um, when the Sony emails leaked that the head of Marvel was saying something about uh, he listed all of he listed Elektra, Catwoman, and Supergirl the movie, and um, about why you know all of those had done so poorly, and that just basically everything was a, a bad I do that going forward, trying to make any female-driven superhero franchise was a bad idea based on these couple examples. And I think that, you know, whether it was a poor script or it was, you know, 
like this, I think this might have been the Supergirl movie that um, Jennifer you had mentioned, but the movie came out in 1984. You know, and obviously that that he had been citing, oh, well, this did really poorly 30 years ago, so we're not going to try it again. Yet they're willing to be willing to give, you know, Spider-Man the umpteenth reboot. And I think that, I mean, the reality is it's, it's, it, it stinks of sexism, racism in a lot of cases, and just people being assholes. I mean, and I think that people, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's sort of just that, that you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not, as not necessarily a superhero fan. I'm not, you know, I can't speak to this industry as much in general, but I think that I'm really excited about the idea of a Wonder Woman movie, not as a viewer, but as it, it sounds like, you know, it'd be awesome to have a female-driven uh, superhero film to finally sort of stick in this guy's, people like this guy, and like sort of shove down his throat and say, look, you piece of trash, I'm trying to be nice. You know, look, that's actually not the case. Okay, maybe it hasn't been the perfect storm before, but, you know, this actually works. And I think, you know, for example, you know, female-driven films like Hidden Figures just outdid, you know, how, you know, just out, had is one of the biggest grossing films of the past year. There's always, there's, there's always been audiences there for stuff like that. It's just a lot of times the gatekeepers have been individuals without open minds or, you know, with, you know, there's a lot of ingrained misogyny and racism. And I think that they're probably whatever, you know, few opportunities have been offered have been minimal and, or, you know, whether the script wasn't right or, you know, they've been people, women in general have been given a lot uh, fewer chances. And I think what I'm actually particularly excited about, and I think that kind of interesting is that, Wonder Woman is being played by an Israeli actress. And I think I, um, it's really interesting to see, have a, have a Jewish woman be on screen and playing Wonder Woman, because as a Jewish woman, that's something I really haven't seen. Really, I've never really sort of seen that representation in, in a comic book. And it's interesting to see how it does. I think that female women in general and, you know, minorities across the screen need to really be able to be represented more. People need to be able to see themselves on screen. And this is not specific to me, but there is such a lack of diversity because, the, again, the gatekeepers are largely old white men. And I think that people like, you know, Ava DuVernay or, you know, actors and actresses, like whether it's Taraji Henson or Samir Wiley or, you know, some of the great thespians and writers and artists of our time are, you know, you know, I'm here for any movie that kicks the patriarchy and the racist dicks of the world in the nuts. So I am. <laughs> okay. Carly, I love yeah. you. I love you. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Well, let's talk about a little bit about kicking things around in another form. Casey, um, you and I met through work. Uh, but the reason our friendship, one of the reasons our friendship grew is because we had a common interest in World of Warcraft. Your passion for this is something that I've admired because I've watched as you've contributed to the Convert to Raid community in World of Warcraft, both inside and outside the game. Uh, You moderate your husband Dwayne's um, Hearthstone Twitch channel when he's streaming, and you go to BlizzCon almost every year um, since I've known you. According to a report by Quantic Foundry, women only made up 36% of high fantasy MMOs like World of Warcraft and 7% of first-person shooters like Overwatch. But they dominate match three in families or farming um, simulator gaming. 
how can game genres that have low female participation expand their audience or draw in more women to MMOs like WoW? So to be honest, I know that my answer here is going to sound very sexist and it is not meant to be, I'm, you know, I, I think that I'm a feminist, you know, but um, I feel that oftentimes in regards to games like MMOs, like World of Warcraft and first person shooters like Call of Duty and Overwatch, that oftentimes women feel, women who are drawn to, to video games end up playing video games that are less time commitments due to the requirements that they feel to keep a home, um, to take care of children, to make dinner, to do laundry. Um, because unfortunately, MMOs and first-person shooters, they, they take time. The time that I've put into World of Warcraft, I will never look at my slashed played. Um, I don't want to see those numbers because I'm sure I would probably <laughs> cry a little yeah, bit. It could be a depressing sometimes when <laughs> yes. you look at that. Um, but you have to take time to do those daily quests. You have to take the time to grind out gear and loot. And you have to practice for first-person shooters. You have to learn new maps. You have to learn new characters. You have to learn the changes that they've made to the game. And, and, and that is a lot of time. I don't have small children myself. My husband, he can mostly take care of himself. Um, so I can say that I know a lot of women who play these games who you watch their commitment time get smaller and smaller. Oh, I've gotten another child. Or, you know, some women that I know who do have children and have full-time jobs, obviously, um, are amazing players, but maybe just don't play as much. So I think that you get a little bit of that. Um, in regards to these match three family farming stimulation games or what we call real-time games, so easy pickup games that are on your phone like, you know, Farmville and things like that, that's easy to do while you're sitting on the couch watching TV. You can interact with your children, your husband and stuff like that, even if you, you know, are, are working on that. It's, it's also portable where MMOs, first-person shooters, you need a console, you need a TV, um, and you need time how do we make those more accessible to women i think that you have to have the community of amazing women who are doing great in these types of games who are raising families and killing dragons to stand up to to say hey you know if this is something that you're interested in get in here with us you know, um, the stigma that games are filled with guys who live in their parents' basements, unfortunately, has to be stopped because you're not going to get people who want to participate in games like that when they believe that, well, there's nobody like me, um, which is a little bit of what I had originally thought when I first started playing. I, um, my actual ex-boyfriend at the, well, ex-boyfriend roommate at the time started playing World of Warcraft, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I watched him play. Again, it feels a lot like when I first started watching video games with my cousin playing. Um, it was like watching a movie or a TV show. They, they showed me the story, and I thought it was so cool. And he's like, do you want to play? And I'm like, no, it looks way too hard for me. And I don't know why. I, I was always naturally good at video games. So I don't know why I thought that this would be harder than anything else I had done. It took a couple tries, but I went in and I dived in and uh, kind of really haven't looked back in regards to that. I want to follow up that uh, question by transitioning to the topic of sexism. We've touched on it throughout the conversation, but whether it's in gaming, Hollywood, publishing, geekdom it can have a, a lot of in-game, out-of-game, behind-the-scenes, on-the-screen 
sexism. Casey, you know I listen to a lot of, uh, I listen to a number of gaming podcasts, and on those shows I've heard female uh, streamers and gamers talk about the sexism they've dealt with um, in the game or from people who've trolled their streams. If or when you've been faced with this in-game, how have you dealt with it? And um, what can other gamers who see someone being targeted do to step up? Definitely. In-game, while playing a female character, I've had many guys just whisper me dirty comments like they think that that's acceptable. In dungeons, I've been called out for being a terrible player, that, and I'm not. Um, in raid teams where you have the same group of people that you're playing with week in and week out, your invoice mm. chat, they know you're a woman, um, pretty much tell me I'm wrong or being overly emotional because I'm a woman, um, which, how do I handle that? I pretty much just lay the smack down. I have no problem putting them in their place. I have no point, no problem in saying, you know, I've led multiple guilds with high level turnout. I've been selected by my fellow raid team to, you know, provide guidance and direction. I'm a great player. You know, the, the stats, the numbers themselves show, show that. Um, and, and for those that have ever spoken out to me, know that them being male doesn't phase me. I, I don't think that you're automatically a good player because you're male. I don't think that you're automatically a bad player player because you're female or young or anything like that um i think the way that we have to be able to fix that and target that is for people to speak out and stick together the bro relationships that are going on in regards to gaming um are very difficult for both female and even lgbt players um those two groups kind of feel like they really need to stick together because we're better together um i'm adamant that people are good to each other in game out of game um in our guild in world of warcraft convert to raid um we also go by the acronym ctr um which for us has another meaning community teamwork respect for our guild and our server and the community that we live um, that credo is very important to us, and that's the kind of community that I recommend that people try to find in any game that they play, be World of Warcraft, be Call of Duty. You have to find a community of people that are going to be respecting of each other, um, which is going to shut down those people who feel that you know they can be that bro and be like, oh, hey, just because you're a woman, you know, you can't do this. Another aspect of sexism is pay inequality, uh, or inequity, I should say. Let's talk about it for a bit. Um, in 2015, Jennifer Lawrence wrote an open letter talking about how she and Amy Adams earn less than their American Hustle male co-stars. In 2016, Gillian An Anderson revealed that she was offered half of what David Duchovny was offered to return for the X-Files revival, which... I can't imagine how that is possible, considering she would be the reason I watch for X-Files, not him. That same year, Forbes published the highest paid actress list and combined the top 10 um, actresses earned less than half of what their male counterparts earned. Uh, this year, the leads of The Big Bang Theory took pay cuts so that uh, Maya Bialik and Melissa Rauch could get raises. Jennifer, um, you touched on, you mentioned it earlier, but not only are you an author, but you um, worked in the film industry on Lord of the Rings and the, and the Golden Compass. What about Hollywood culture needs to change so that women can get financial parity with men? 
I mean, I think I did touch on it earlier. I mean, it really boils down to, I think we need more women as the gatekeepers. I think Carly was talking about that also. And then mentoring the next generation of women to come after them. So we need them at the gatekeepers, at the publishing houses, in the movie studios, and in the TV um, networks. Um, and, you know, right now they're still very much a minority, especially when you start to get into even more diversity elements. You know, a really good example is, you know, Empire, the television show, which has been a phenomenon, you know, essentially. Um, there's a classmate of mine from Harvard. His name's Terrence Carter. He's the head of that network now. Empire is his baby. That show exists because of him, and he is a black man in Hollywood. And so you start to see that when you put someone like that, you know, you can see that they can craft something um, that really is in some ways more reflective of the world that we live in. So I just think we need that for women also. Um, you know, in terms of parity, I think we also need uh, transparency. And I think, you know, these actresses going public is great, but they're also in this position of power, you know. Uh, I agree with you on Agent Scully, like, hello. Um, I don't even know how they could make the X-Files without her. I mean, she is at least 50% of that, if not more. Um, but it definitely goes on. It does go on in publishing. It wasn't that long ago that um, J.K. Rowling, who does not have a middle name, um, was told that no one would buy Harry Potter from a woman, and she had to use initials to publish, you know? And that wasn't that long ago. Um, in the science fiction world, um, YA is, is different. We have more women writing YA, and there's reasons for that. Um, but in adult science fiction, you know, women still face a lot of challenges. Um, it's been an issue in the science fiction and fantasy writers of America. Um, I think it's somewhat similar to what you're talking about in the video game world. Um, you know, some similar sort of bullying or feeling disenfranchised. Um, you know, and I think more women are writing science fiction, which is fantastic. But I think that we still face a lot of um, discrimination. A lot of times people think we write soft science fiction or it's, it's not like real science fiction. Um, so I think, you know, even small things like for me, um, when I first um, signed with the producer who's producing the film version of the 13th Continuum, you know, I told him I'm very open to structural changes to make it work as a film. The one thing I'll fight them tooth and nail on is that the casting has to be diverse and reflective of what I wrote in the book. Um, you know, that is the biggest issue for me. Um, you know, I don't like seeing series like Hunger Games where I look at it and I'm like, mm, they're all white. So the future is white. Like what happened? Like what happened to all of the people who are living now? Did we have an ethnic cleansing between now and the future? Like, how do you explain that? So um, to me, um, I think the more we start to really push for the seeing it and, and inclusivity um, in terms of the film industry, um, the biggest thing is directors. A director is really who shapes the film. I mean, they are the architects as much as they are basically like the author. It's not the screenwriter. It's really not even the studio head. It's the director. So I think if you start opening up um, who is actually making these films, that's when you're going to start to see real change. And I think as, you know, consumers of content, we should ask for it. Like, we should demand it. We should demand that they, you know, give more women a chance. Um, one thing that I see happens a lot in Hollywood is that, you know, you'll see films getting made in the micro budget range, you know, one to three million, actually, um, Moonlight would qualify as one of those. And you see diversity behind the camera and making those and you see women showing up 
with films at film festivals, but then what happens is they don't get the bump to the Marvel movie, whereas male directors, well, they'll bump them up to directing, you know, the next Thor, whereas the female director who maybe got a grand jury prize at Sundance, she's going to be stuck making like more mid-range and low-budget films. She's not getting that bump where Disney or Marvel or Warner Brothers is coming to her and saying, I'm giving you Wonder Woman. Um, so I think that when we start to see uh, more chances and opportunities given, that's when you're going to see change across all these levels. Melody, uh, last year, a number of Hollywood's leading ladies joined an advisory board called We Do It Together. It's a nonprofit company whose emphasis is on female empowerment in films, TV, and other media. If you could wave a wand and magically um, have this company produce a great sci-fi, fantasy, or comic book project, what would you like to see them bring to, to life? Gosh, I want to see so many things. That's kind of my thing. Like, why? I don't know why, but I I always like villains. So, you know, I think it would be great to have this big band of, you know, female villains together and try to take over the world or something. And the person that has to stop them is another woman who's like a part of the police force or something. And they all have these powers. I think that would be great. Or why not a female solo time traveler? And she's badass. Like, I just... Anything. The the realm of possibilities is huge. So I, I don't necessarily want to, you know, say, oh, this is the one thing I want to see because I want to see it all. I want to see us do everything because who run the world? Women. Beyonce taught us that. <laughs> we uh, do rule Car the world. <laughs> <laughs> Carly, uh, Jennifer sort of touched on it earlier regarding the YA genre. It's It tends to be dominated by women. I'm a huge YA sci-fi fantasy adventure um, fan. I love reading it. I walk the book section I, to see what's there. And when I do, a lot of times I see women authors' names, and there's men here and there. And so I think to myself as an aspiring YA author, it's like, how am I ever going to compete? Then I think to myself, well, wait a minute. It's like Jennifer pointed out. Um, women had in the sci-fi, the classic category a lot of women have had to use initials or pseudonyms in order to even get published so how do women cross over from genres they dominate like YA and say romance into ones that are dominated by men or is it just a reality of publishing that there's going to be certain genres that are dominated by one gender or the other and that is how we get parody I think romance is a bit of an anomaly in the sense that it's often written by women for female audience. So while there is certainly a lot of room for many different kinds of stories to be told, that it's originally started as it's one of one of the few areas in which women female authors were really allowed dominance from the very beginning. So I think that again, and the primary con, uh, consuming audience is still women. So I think that. In romance, there is there are a number of male authors, but I think that it has and probably will remain a um, an industry by uh, and for women. YA is an interesting example. There's a website called the Mary Sue that writes a lot about gender and uh, discrimination in publishing and in TV, and they had a really interesting article about um, in response to New York Times article a few years ago about sort of saying, well, is there any hope for young men today because all of the young adult fiction is is actually um, written by women? And I think that, in contrast, I think that um, 
young women are a demographic that's really often really traditionally been sort of shunted out of the uh, out of the spectrum of of groups that are being written for or you know or being written about. And I think that in a way, what we're seeing today is a lot of catch up because you know the mm-hmm. um, and I think that even there was the New York Times response to the New York Times article actually found that most YA novels have main have male characters but have actually become more male centric even if there aren't as many oh. young adult uh, male authors today as, as there might seem to be and apparently even 30 they cited an example that 30 only um, 31% of all children's books which includes uh, children's and YA are even have female uh, even have female characters especially characters in the lead and lead roles so I think that what what you may see on the shelf isn't necessarily representative of the realities that are being presented. It's not just necessarily someone writing to a young female audience, which there are plenty of, and it's, it's about, you know, it's really great that that's being addressed, but I think that there still, you know, are a lot of men writing. I think that there is a lot more that some great progress has been made in terms of opening by aid to women, but I think there also needs to be, you know, and there has been some movement on this front, but I think that there definitely needs to be more about opening um, YA m- more to uh, individuals from diverse backgrounds, with minority voices, telling different stories that aren't just uh, sort of what we've seen so far, both in terms of, you know, the traditional, you know, young man. Hunger Games divergent. Story. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I think it's, there, obviously, there need to be stories told by and about every group, and I think that in general, I mean, I think I lo- I'm completely here for female-driven stories, but I think that in addition to that, there needs to be space, and there should be space, and there are a lot of really great editors doing this work in YA, and I don't happen to work in YA, but you know, there are so many fantastic books that um, have been published and hopefully will be published in the, in the future that um, really are allowing young kids to see themselves in stories that, especially in an increasingly, unfortunately, xenophobic world with, I'm not going to go into political, but with people like Donald Trump, you know, you, books are a place of refuge for young people. And I think that it's so, it's more important now than ever that people are able to see themselves in a story, especially young people. And I think that, you know, we need to sort of, we need to listen, learn, and do our best to, you know, to combat issues that, you know, to sort of combat xenophobia and all sorts of phobias, let's be honest, with, um, you know, by supporting diverse authors of diverse backgrounds. And I think one one place that's doing this really well is um, Salam Reads, which is a new imprint, I believe from Simon & Schuster, that is primarily by and about, it's primarily um, for authors of, of um to identify as Muslim and for featuring Muslim characters. And it's such, they just put out their first book. I think it's called Amina's Voice. It's on my to read list and it looks amazing. And I think that really committing the industry as a whole, especially publishing really needs to commit to diversifying and adding more space in for more voices than just what's already there. Because I think that there, there, there's no excuse in today's world for narrow-mindedness. And I think that in romance in particular is, you know, there's been some 
growth and there continued, you know, needs to be more growth in every area of publishing, whether it's recruitment from from on the editorial and marketing sides or whether it's authors that you know are looking for. And I think I mentioned last week the own voices movement on Twitter has been a really awesome place for, you know, authors of you know, many different backgrounds, whether I mean, really every different background to be able to be highlighted and to be able to, you know, individuals looking to acquire diverse fiction in particular are able, you know, are highlighted. And I mean, there are so many authors that are already out there writing the content. You know, people will say, oh, well, such and such doesn't sell. That's never been the case. It's just that people have not necessarily given a space on their shelf or, you know, a chance to a director or writer who is, isn't, a cis white male. You know, I think that some strides have been made in publishing, but I think we all need to continue to make more strides. And that's one of the reasons I value Twitter is because I'm able to listen and learn and use whatever, you know, small platform I may have to hopefully, um, you know, I'm really to hopefully help improve the industry. And again, I'm an assistant editor, so it's not, you know, I'm not, I don't have my own imprint, not yet anyway, but you know, I think that it's you well. that we as an industry. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You never know. But um, but to to really reflect the world around us because it isn't just you know one side. And I think that the the inclusion of many many female YA authors is is a good start. But we need to all go a lot further. Jennifer, as an author, how do you see uh, female parody in publishing? I mean, I think it's still, quite frankly, a huge challenge. I mean, I think, um, you know, here's something that's, I think, very interesting. And Carly um, probably knows about this or may know more details on it than I do. But, um, you know, the most uh, financially successful, the two genres that make the most money are young adult and romance. And it's really kind of not even close. And guess who dominates those genres? Female authors. And I think that I've, the broad strokes of the reason is that typically men gravitate towards genres that carry some measure of prestige, includes literary fiction, even things like thrillers. Um, the New York Times will review thrillers and male-driven stuff like content like that, um, whereas oh they don't gosh. really review I, what's called women's fiction. Yeah, it makes me ridiculous. crazy. And the, yeah, and and the just, I'm, I'm so sorry. They, they just go, eliminated go. the mass market paperback list. On I know the New York I Times. Saw so that. New York Times, yeah, and so mass market paperback is just for anyone who might not know is the smaller, um, you know, a lot of romance novels are like the, the sort of the smaller soft cover version, and a lot of romance is you know has been sold as mass market paperback, and the New York Times just eliminated their mass market paperback bestseller list, and it's just one more way of squeezing out a genre that they you know maybe deem as less prestigious or you know trying to. It's, it's, it's really Marginal, annoying. Jennifer, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just got, no, Carly, I, I agree. <laughs> but you know what else they eliminated? They eliminated the young adult ebook list. Yes, that's From the bestseller true. list, which hurts a lot of my best friends that write young adult. That's how they've become New York Times bestselling authors is through the ebook list. So it's really hitting my genre really hard as well. And it's, it's very marginalizing. Um, so typically women gravitated towards young adult and children's literature because it wasn't prestigious. It's typically never really gotten a lot of respect. Um, it's relatively new that with the success it's had. 
um, that it's starting to get more attention, but I think the respect is still lagging. And I do see that when I go to, cause I, I attend literary conferences and, um, I do write things that I consider a little more upscale, but at the same time, um, you know, I do encounter bias a lot from kind of literary circles where, especially when I'm double writing YA and science fiction, um, it's kind of like this double hit where people don't take you seriously. So, you know, I think part of the issue has to do with um, why are we selling the most books yet not getting the respect that should come along with that. So that's both for YA and romance. Um, you know, I think, you know, I I really hope we can start to have um, more diverse voices. Like Carly was saying, uh, my friend Jen Baker started the uh, We Need Diverse Books, and she um, runs the Diversity and Publishing podcast, and she is an incredible human being, um, and I worship her. And uh, I met her at a writer's retreat that we went on. And so there are people who are doing really fantastic work um, in this arena, but we still have really a long way to go. And I think, you know, some of it is um, gender bias. I'm sure everyone has heard about the resume study um, where they showed people the exact same resume. Um, and one had a, a girl's name on it, which was actually, I think it was Jennifer, which is like my name. And the other had a male name, but they were the same resume. And they had people come in and rate them as to how qualified they would be for a position. And the man's resume was rated consistently uh, more qualified, uh, more competent, than the woman and I think they repeated the study using names that had like an ethnic underpinning to them and the same results were pretty much found and I think so it's the same with books you know with seeing a name on a book there's an unconscious bias and then I think with what Carly has been talking about in the political atmosphere we're living in some of what was maybe buried under the surface has really burst forward I've been trolled on Twitter and within the last year a lot of my author friends have been trolled on Twitter by some of these I don't know. I'm going to call them white supremacists. I'm not calling them all right. I don't buy into that. I think they're Nazis. But, um, you know, and I think that it is kind of um, a really important time because I think for um, people who are being marginalized, I mean, we've seen what's been happening with transgender issues. Um, it's so more important than ever that they see themselves in books. And uh, my best friend from high school writes LBGTQ YA. Her name's Robin Talley. And I think Harlequin actually published her first book, which was The Life yeah, You Tell yeah. Herself. She's okay, so Robin was, oh, she was my best friend in high school. So remember, I talked about growing up in a small town and geeking out over Tamara Pierce and Anne Rice. Like we were, the, we were, there was us against the world. And so I don't think it's an accident that we're both writing um, diverse YA right now. You know, she's a doll. I love her to death. And her uh, books, I think, are really important. Uh, what We Left Behind is kind of loosely based on our experience in high school and college. I am thanked in the acknowledgments. So, yeah, and I think Harlequin gave her her break because, I, I mean, I don't want to, like, tell too many stories about her, but um, it, that's not the first book she wrote. Most of us write books that do not sell before we get published. And I think Harlequin gave her her big break, and that book has gone on to win awards and um, get her a lot of attention, and it's absolutely important and fabulous. So, you know, I think that, you know, you can see that there is good, good, there are good things happening and there are people breaking down doors. But I think we have a long way to go in terms of respect for the work that women are doing, um, where I think a lot of women who are doing incredible work aren't always getting um, the attention, the respect, the prestige um, in publishing that they still deserve. Um, and I would like to see that happen more. I mean, to me, like Victoria Schwab is writing as good as anybody else right now. She writes, um, she started out in YA and she writes adult fantasy. Her book just landed on the bestseller list. 
but you know, I want to see people like that getting attention, getting respect, getting bestseller status. And um, yeah, and agreeing with Carly, the changes the New York Times made recently, it really does hurt us. And I do believe they feel very targeted towards these genres where women are writing. Um, Jennifer Weiner also talks about this a lot about not getting reviewed. Yeah. And so she's wonderful. I love her books. Um, And she is Okay, so my short story about this is that the first book I ever wrote that landed me an agent was a was a contemporary adult novel. Um, newsflash: If you're a woman who writes a contemporary adult novel about a female character, you are considered women's fiction. And I remember being like, I thought I just wrote fiction. Why am I writing women's fiction? Um, and for me, that was really challenging. The book did not sell. It did land me a great agent, though. But at the time, I remember really reading a lot of what Jennifer was saying and being like, yeah, why don't they review these kind of books? If a man had written this novel I wrote, I actually believe it would have sold. I also believe that it would have just been considered fiction. And people have been like, oh, wow, look, at a complicated female character. Look at him. He wrote this character. And then when I write it, it's more like, hey, is it a book club book? It's a women's publishing book. It's this, it's that. And, you know. That, that term really does exist. Sorry, I'm offended by the women's fiction term. I'm like, isn't it just all fiction? Like, what? I think we do have a long way to go, but I think there are some people, Jody Pickle's great too, who are speaking out about some of the, the problems with the reviewing and who will review their books. Um, but yeah, we have a long way to go. And just piggybacking off of that, I think one of the reasons that romance as a genre is so often looked down upon and unjustly, some of the most talented, innovative fascinating books I've ever read have been romance novels and, and the authors are, you know, I work with and that I read are unbelievably talented. I think that it's because it's often written by women for women. So therefore it's seen as somehow lesser than, or as a quote unquote guilty pleasure, much in the way that soaps are often deemed uh, unsubstantive, frothy, or um, not deserving of critical acclaim, whether daytime or primetime, because, there, you know, there's romance often plays a central component or because, you know, they're written, you know, targeting a female audience or written by women. I think that even in the way that they're regarded, but again, like Jennifer said, there, it's one, romance is one of the best-selling subgenres and, you know, the subgenres as well. And the authors are incredibly creative and passionate and, and are writers in the greatest sense of the word. And I think that a lot of times that they, it can, as a genre, can get looked down upon so very unjustly because it's seen as, oh, it's just for women. And that's, I mean, not only is that not the case, but it's also because it, women are oftentimes the focal point, whether as authors or as, um, as readers, it's somehow seen as suffering quality. When, if anything, that's, I mean, I think it's the exact opposite. Don't you see something like Nicholas Sparks? I mean, he writes romance, right? I mean, and then he, and, you know, where there's a different standard for men who are writing, and I see this in Young Adult where the New York Times will write a piece. Like, there was something recently where there was a male author who published a YA novel, and the article headline New York Times was, oh, a male author finally brings the grit back to young adult fiction. And all my friends are like, no, we're writing with grit. We've been writing with grit for like 20 years. Like, what do you mean a man has to bring the grit, you know, and the reality? That's not accurate, you know? So, I don't know. Sorry, that stuff drives me nuts. But, yeah, there's. I feel like male authors who are writing this sometimes do get more attention and prestige than women who are writing things that are very similar, like um, John Green versus Jennifer E. Smith, you know? Anyways. 
No worries. It's it's a wonderful discussion. Before I move on uh, to my next question for Casey, one thing that I've noticed is that the romance genre and the YA genre seem to cross-pollinate. For example, I discovered Chronicles of Nick in the YA section, and I started reading that one, and then later discovered that Sherilyn Kenyon had had a long line of Dark Hunter books in the romance section. And I started reading those books. It was like, oh, she's actually got an interesting mythology. I wasn't necessarily reading it for the romance, but it was like, here I have this great character in the Chronicles of Nick. I want to find out more about that world. So I started reading the series. Conversely, um, Gail Carringer has a steampunk series, which I absolutely adore. She like her humor in her books is just something that just makes me laugh every time I read the book. And I discovered that in the sci-fi series, like the section, but it's basically a paranormal steampunk romance. But now she has her own line in the YA section. So I find it fascinating how those two seem to be cross-pollinating. Casey, according to Business Insider, in 2015, the highest paid male esports gamer earned $1.9 million in prize money. I did some research, but and I wasn't able to find like individual like earnings for prize monies in recent years. But when I some of the older ones that I found, the women made nowhere near that. Now, currently there are women who are very successful on Twitch and on YouTube, so there are areas where women are making a lot of money and having parity there. But how do you think female gamers break into the top tier of esports so that when you have a list of the top 10 earners, there will be women among it? And how do other women who might be aspiring to stream follow in the path of women who have been successful in it? Yeah. So, oh, esports. It is, that is such a hard spot all over. It's, it's, it still needs to be taken serious and in the mainstream. Um, and then in regards to the female aspect of it, it is very much an, an issue. I've actually been watching the Hearthstone Winter Championships with my husband this last week and weekend. And every single player was a guy. Everybody. Um, I've also watched a lot of Heroes of the Storm um, from Heroes of the Dorm, which is a, a collegiate championship where you can win um, your entire college to be covered which I don't know why anybody, if you could just play video games and get your college covered, like, doesn't that seem like amazing? Um, To even just their normal tournaments. All of those, of all of those that I've watched, only one female player. And the spin on that is she's transgender. So the female component is just definitely not there. Um, I, I did also look to see if I could find... Um, some numbers in regards to female esports, and you were saying 1.9 for one year for somebody. Um, the, yeah, the... like when I when I was looking, the old the most recent I could find was 2012, and it was like a hundred thousand mm-hmm. or something like that. Yep, I found a website that showed the list of lifetime, and the lifetime amounts for the highest um, grossing female esports player was still under 200,000. Um, so you could definitely see how there's very much that that difference between the two of them. For esports, I feel that for people to really get into there, into there for females to get into esports, they really have to find other players, and they have to find a community, and they have to find managers that are going to promote them, and they have to be accepting of them the thought that female players aren't as good or that they don't want to be competitive um, is, is a very strong mindset. 
you know, it's one of those things where you, you, even if you look at regular sports, football, basketball, you know, you get all of those sports where the male sports have a much higher turnout. Um, They're on TV more. The female sports are not followed as much. I mean, it's basketball season and it's March Madness, but who are we watching? March Madness is only the the male, the you know the male side of the basketball teams. That even though March Madness for females basketball is still going on, but that's not what's followed. They just have to find the people. They have to get themselves out there. They have to sign up for tournaments. They have to find that community that's going to be conducive for them getting into that. I mean, unfortunately, there's just really no other way. They have to take themselves seriously. And they have to find others who will do the same. Regarding Twitch, I have a lot of issues with Twitch myself. Um, we watch Twitch often. My husband is addicted to Hearthstone. And we watch Hearthstone streams all the time. All the streamers that we watch are male. Of the female characters, sorry, not characters. Of the female streamers that we have watched or tried to watch in the past, they end up being too obnoxious. Usually for me, I'm much more particular on what I'm going to sit there and watch. They either try to be overly sexual. They try to be, they even sometimes just act, act so stupid. Like, I don't know why I did that. It's really so hard to find streamers who are female streamers who are good at the game and, and treat streaming as a profession. Most guys who are on stream treat it like another job and so I I don't know if it's maybe just pretty girls are going to end up having streams because guys are going to turn out or because most of the people who watch Twitch are also guys Um, though I also have had a lot of issues with male streamers for the same issues they you know are just obnoxious I want women to being bros being bros yeah just so much Uh, We call it salt, which is just being negative and insensitive to other people. They're just being salty the whole time. Um, I want women to do well on Twitch, but I can only imagine how tough it would be to be on there and for people in your stream to be rude. You have to have moderators to get in, to watch people, to monitor that kind of stuff. Because people say inappropriate things all the time. I mean, my husband's stream... He's a guy. He has a webcam. He's had people like, oh, take off your shirt, blah, blah, blah. And he's a guy. As a female, I can only imagine that that's something that you would just hear over and over and over because people are idiots. And it doesn't seem like there's a way to stop that. Um, Also, in regards to the top 10 female streamers that you linked, I have never heard of any of them. But... Looking at what they've played, only one of them played World of Warcraft. None of them played League of Legends or Hearthstone, which are the highest viewed and most streamed games on Twitch. So if you're looking to, and for them, they often look like they were playing playthrough games, games that have a standard storyline, and they just played through it and put their own commentary. Or they played building games such as Minecraft or The Sims or city skylines Um, to be a top streamer or esports representative women have to play the games that are at the top you want to make that money you've got to play for you've got to play the games that are making the money you've got to play dota you've got to play league of legends hearthstone 
and, and growing very fast. Overwatch. Yes. And Overwatch. Yes. I mean, with Overwatch League starting, I mean, women who want to be professional, you know, esports representatives have to get into that as soon as possible, as quickly as any of their male counterparts. Um, I think that for Twitch streamers, all streamers need to have two things confidence in themselves and the ability to explain what's going on. Um, most of the time explanation streams where people are chit chatting with their stream, they're explaining what they're doing in game. They're providing a service are, are the most popular. And then once you get into that popular part, then you can kind of do things a little bit outside the norm to kind of keep your followers, you know, inclusive to, to your stream. Yeah. And then really you have to find what makes you, you, and you have to do what you're passionate about. And if you're not passionate enough to, to put in the time for esports or, or the time into Twitch, you know, it, it isn't going to pay out those two things. Like I've said again, with playing MMOs, it takes time. Um, so I think it has some of the similar issues that, you know, getting females into those types of um, MMOs and such. It's, it's difficult. Okay. This has been a fantastic discussion. I apologize. It went longer than I expected, but I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Mel, do you have any final thoughts on the topic? I agree with you, Luke. I think it was a really great discussion with these ladies. Um, women in geekdom, we are amazing. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Don't let anyone try to put you down. You like what you like. You love what you love. And you do it because you love it. And that's what I got. Harley? I completely agree with what uh, Mel said. I, You know what? Follow your passion. And unfortunately, the world is such a place that there's always going to be some sort of, or hopefully not always, but, you know, working together and by, you know, educating ourselves about the plight that we face and that others face, we can all hopefully work together to make geekery and geekdom um, more accessible and better for future generations. I feel like that was like very, like very broad sweeping and like in a way that I didn't necessarily mean it. That's to be, perfectly okay. I love final thoughts that are broad statements. Don't worry about it at all. I totally appreciate it. Jennifer, final thoughts. I'll just repeat something I heard at the Hidden Figures panel last night, which is uh, don't take no for an answer. Catherine Johnson apparently asked to be admitted to that main meeting at NASA so many times that they just got sick of her asking and finally let her go to the meeting. So, you know, don't take no for an answer. Write what's in your heart for aspiring writers. Read as much as you can. Write what you love. Don't let anyone tell you it's wrong. Find your unique voice. And don't ever forget who really rules the world. Casey? Um, it was a wonderful stream. Uh, I, It's always interesting to see... Uh, such a variety of different outlooks on everything. It was funny that we all determined that we're all from smaller little towns, but then we've all have very similar yet unsimilar backgrounds, which I think is what makes being a woman. One of the most amazing things is, you know, yes, we're all women, but it's so Except amazing. Wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Luke Sorry. will make you an honorary woman. Luke, you can be yeah, an honorary woman. You. We'll take you. Oh, you come go. over. <laughs> but what what ends up happening is, you know, we came together, and even though we all have different backgrounds, there was so much for us to just 
communicate together with. I mean, there was lots of people that are like, oh my gosh, yeah, this. And, and it's so amazing. And that's so exciting just to see. And, and even though it's only been for two hours of today, um, you know, it was us all talking about what we are passionate about and what we loved and talking about how we are our own individuals, which is so important for everyone to find. Melody, where can people find you on Twitter? Um, you can find me at my name at Melody Akles, M-E-L-O-D-I-E-A-I-K-E-L-S. Carly, where can they find you? They can find me at Carly A. Silver, and Carly spelled C-A-R-L-Y, and then just A and then the color. Okay. <laughs> Je- Jennifer, where can um, people learn more about the 13th Continuum and your trilogy? Uh, is it best to go to your website on Twitter? Where do you like to refer people? I'm happy to talk to people anywhere. My website is jenniferbrody.com, and it's pretty great. Lots of book information and links. Um, I'm on Twitter at Jennifer Brody. I'm on Instagram at Jennifer Brody Writer. Um, I'm also on Facebook. So, yeah, anywhere people want to find me. Um, my books are sold everywhere. Books are sold Amazon, Barnes and Noble, indie books. Indies like Mysterious Galaxy and Book Soup are very close to my heart, and like I like to support them. But, yeah, check me out. I love talking to people who have read my books. Awesome. Casey, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CK Eckholm, E-C-K-H-O-L-M. Um, I'm on there with all kinds of fun gaming stuff and lots of cat photos. There you go. Um, as always, you can follow Geek Confidential on Twitter at GK Confidential. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash GK Confidential. You can find me at Luke underscore Kerr. Uh, we thank you for listening. Until next time, so long. Thank <laughs> you.